Today's scripture reading comes from Mark 1, 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know about you, but I can't believe that summer's already come to an end. Already we see work and life rhythms for the fall cranking back up. School, of course, is back in session, but under very different kinds of circumstances. Grace to you kids and you teachers and you parents for the start of school. And the summer also means that our congregations are kicking up the fall ministry season. The truth is, as you know, things aren't as they normally are. We're facing a lot of uncertainty this fall. We don't always know what's going to be ahead. But here's one thing we do know about what life together as a church is going to be. Today, right now, we are starting a new sermon series, a new study in the Gospel of Mark, the second book of the New Testament. And it's going to be called, this series is going to be called, Follow Me. Follow Me. Those are two of the most powerful words that you'll find in the entire Bible. They were spoken, of course, by Jesus himself four times right here in the book of Mark alone. Whether you're brand new to the Christian faith or you've been a Christian for many, many years, have you personally heard, personally heard the call of Jesus lately? Follow me. You know, Jesus never said, admire me from afar. <laughs> he never said, follow my advice. Jesus didn't say, follow your heart. He didn't say, you decide, I'll follow you. No, Jesus said, follow me, follow me. And that's part invitation, part command to become his disciples, his followers, to renounce all competing loyalties and allegiances, to belong to him, to know his love, to be changed by him, to follow him. And that, of course, would be an audacious and even outrageous invitation, if not for the uniqueness of the one who said it. Who, after all, was Jesus? We heard in the opening sentence of our reading, Jesus is called the Christ. 
uh, in the ancient languages, uh, that's a word that meant the anointed one, a reference to kings. Uh, Jesus was the promised Messiah, the one who would rescue the world from sin, darkness, and evil. That's who's arriving onto the scene. That's who the gospel of Mark is all about. He's also described as the divine son of God, the son of God. To follow this Jesus, we're told, is gospel, good news. So does it ring in your ears as good news to hear that Jesus, the one who's God and man, the one who's the rescuer of this world, of you and me, that he's the one who welcomes you, invites you to follow me. And so to those who are longing for newness and renewal, a new beginning, a fresh start as we run this marathon that seems to have no finish line, Jesus calls to you and says, follow me. Uh, to those who are seeking meaning, maybe especially in this hard time in life. Those that are seeking direction before the uncertainties and the fragilities of life. Jesus says, follow me. Uh, to those who are desperate for relief in a world of restlessness, Jesus says, follow me. To those who are craving connection and belonging in this prolonged season of distancing, Jesus says, follow me. To those who want to be liberated from the illusion that salvation and freedom is ultimately found in following the right elected official or political party, Jesus says, follow me. To those of you who are desperate for healing, personal healing, corporate healing, social healing, who, who are praying, maybe daily, maybe with tears, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus says, mm -hmm, follow me. To those who are wanting to set aside the encounter of, of, uh, with a, a imposter Jesus, who, who are tired of just making up your own idea of who God really is and who rather really want to devote yourself to encountering the real Jesus or re-encountering the real Jesus, the historical Jesus, the one that we actually find in the Bible, the one who is real. Jesus says, yeah, follow me. Don't you know we are all following someone or something who is it or what is it for you? And is it Jesus? Are you ready to follow Jesus? But the first thing that we're taught in the Gospel of Mark in regards to this Jesus who calls and invites us to follow him is that following Jesus requires spiritual preparation. That's what we're taught here. It requires spiritual Preparation. Following Jesus is not just an intellectual commitment, although there's a lot of things to know about him with our intellect. Following Jesus is not just an act of the will, deciding volitionally, this is just what I'm going to do, follow him. No, no. Following Jesus is a spiritual inward response of the heart and soul. And that's what we find the ministry of John the Baptist was all about. 
We're introduced to him right here in our reading, this passage. We see this in the Old Testament scriptures quoted in verses 2 and in verses 3. We're told that that John's ministry was all about preparation. Verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will, what? Prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, what? Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John was preparing the way for Jesus, not only historically, but also personally. Israel was under foreign oppression. The last thing the people of God heard from their God was a word of judgment, a word of discipline at the end of Malachi, also a word of promise that after centuries of silence that God would come back, but but only by turning back to God would God's people be ready for when the Messiah would come. And the prophets, we were foretold, would actually pave the way. And John the Baptist would be the greatest of prophets. And not only was the arrival of Jesus foretold long ago in the scriptures, but so was John the Baptist's work as a messenger and preparer. Neither was an afterthought. We see this hundreds of years before the events being talked about in the Old Testament of scriptures. That your salvation, God's love for you, is not an afterthought in the heart of God. He planned it all along. So here's John arriving on the scene, fulfilling scripture, and he's paving a way of preparation. But what does preparation for the call to follow Jesus even mean? What does this preparation mean? Well, we learn three things. Three things. The place of preparation We learn about the practice of preparation. And third and lastly, we learn about the promise of preparation. The place, the practice, and the promise of preparation. Let's look at each of those briefly. First, the place of preparation, and that place is the wilderness. We're told in verse 3 again about the voice of one John crying in where? The wilderness. We're told in verse 4 that John appeared baptizing where? In in the wilderness. The wilderness throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament is a place of intrigue, a place of, well, struggle, of of life-transforming encounters with God and places of desolation. What's the wilderness? It's a place of solitude, away from the crowd. You notice we're told in verse 5 that everyone that went out to meet John and to be baptized by him, they all were from all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem, but they were going out to him, out of the cities, out into the wilderness, away from people, away from resources, away from their normal stations of life, their habits, their callings, their work, stripped of social status even, coming on common ground into the wilderness. The wilderness was a place of solitude. It was also a place of scarcity. Not a lot of stuff out there. Not a lot of food. Not a lot of water. Life itself was hard to come by in the wilderness. This is where they met John. The wilderness is a place that's very difficult, very hard. But we find all throughout the Bible, despite or maybe because of 
The wilderness being a place of solitude, a place of scarcity. The wilderness was always a place of intimacy for God's people, a place where they found God. What are we being taught? To find Jesus, we must go out to the place of preparation to find Jesus, to follow him. We must go out to the wilderness. We must find solitude. We we must get away from the crowds and the commotion, get away from the noise. That might mean literally getting away, retreating. We need some spaces like that sometimes. Do you need to get away, even physically? Uh, But also it means getting away from the commotion of the things that numb our souls. Uh, the things that serve as a, a narcotic, uh, maybe not cities themselves, but the crowds and the commotion, the noise in our minds and in our hearts created by, well, Netflix, screens, the intentional things we distract ourselves from. Uh, maybe it's social media. Uh, maybe, again, it's the normal habit and routine that you're in that you need to pull away from. Uh, maybe it's needing to intentionally place yourself in a, in a place where you're not known so that your normal social standing and status is not something that's recognized so that you're just stripped bare as a person, just you and God. You see, scarcity in the wilderness is always a place that fosters dependency upon God. It takes us through a process of, of weaning. Some of you have had children recently. What is weaning? It's, it's when a child is being brought away from their dependency upon their mother for nursing and being brought to a place of different kinds of dependence, solid foods. Uh, well, sometimes we need to place ourselves in, in places where we can be weaned off of the things that we normally depend upon so that we can learn to depend more wholly upon God. The wilderness is a place of weaning. Some of us need to be placed in these places of trial and struggle and scarcity so that we can realize that those other things in life maybe don't work as much as we thought they worked. Places that can, things that we discover can't save us, things that can't make us important or lovable or beautiful, things that fling us into the arms of God. Uh, Friends, do we find ourselves, are we putting ourselves even intentionally in wildernesses that are teaching us that economic security can't save you, Uh, that your career can't save you, only Jesus can, that a just society is something to pray towards and to labor towards, but a just society itself cannot save you. A vaccine might be able to save my body, but it cannot save my soul. Are we learning to look towards God alone as our only salvation. Wildernesses prepare our hearts, stripping us of the things that make us feel like we don't need God. Recently, I've been reading together with my kids the different books of the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, a wonderful Christian author and thinker who wrote this series for children. And one of the books, called The Horse and His Boy, we encounter a great character by the name of Bree, who also happened to be a horse. He was a talking horse, 
from Narnia, a land where all the horses talked, but he was living in a different place and so had to labor as a horse among other common horses who didn't talk. He knew he could, but he kept quiet. He also served in a very valiant and dignified way as a war horse, uh, being able to fight and use his gifts in a way that was, well, respectable, and certainly that's the way that he saw himself. Well, in this story, he lived his whole life seeing himself as one of the superior horses, a war horse and talking horse that he was, and he kind of looked at himself as different from what he called the dumb horses over there. Well, at one point in the story, in a moment of crisis, he actually shrunk back. He didn't show up and step in. He failed to show courage as he ought to have. And Bree sat there afterward, utterly humiliated, completely dejected. He almost lost the entirety of his sense of self, his self-image. He cries out afterwards, I've lost everything. And then a wise old hermit, caring for him, but speaking truth, said to Bree, My good horse, you've lost nothing but your self-conceit. You're not quite the great horse that you had come to think but as long as you know you're nobody very special, you'll be a very decent sort of horse. Friends, some of us have gone through this pandemic and, and lost a lot and the losses are very real. But the thing that actually has laid us most low was not just losing our job. It was not just losing our sense of control. It was not just losing this or that. What really devastated us was losing our, well, superior self-image. Uh, we saw ourselves as the talking horse, the war horse, and when we didn't come through or when things fell apart, well, we fell apart. We feel like, I've lost everything. And here is God gently, kindly, in the wilderness telling us, You've lost nothing, really, not ultimately, but your self-conceit, your self-image. Dear friends, you're not quite the great horse you had come to think you were, but you're still wonderful, an ordinary horse loved by God. Can you accept that station in life? This is what the wilderness teaches us as it strips things away from us and it brings us to a place of solitude and scarcity where we're face to face with God. You see, it brings us to a place of humility, sometimes even humiliation, so that we come to an end of ourselves. Because don't you know, friends, until that happens, we cannot follow Jesus. We will not know Jesus. We will not worship and love Jesus. As pastor and author Tim Keller has said so helpfully and famously, to follow Jesus, all you need is need. And for some of us, that's the hardest place to be. Pastor and author John Stott also put it this way. It's really hard. He said to follow Jesus, to accept grace, because we have to then humble ourselves at the foot of the cross, confess that we have sinned and deserve nothing at his hand but judgment, thank him that he loved us and died for us, and receive from him a full and free forgiveness. And against this self-humbling, our ingrained pride rebels, Stott writes. 
We resent the idea that we cannot earn or even contribute to our own salvation. Grace is free, friends. The love of God is rich. Following Jesus is the desire of our hearts. But it does injury to our pride and to our original self-image. It's a hard place to go into the wilderness. We might, in fact, lose ourselves. We must lose ourselves. But if we dare to do so, we will find God. We will find Jesus. Beloved, is God trying to take you to the wilderness and you're resisting him? Where's the wilderness in your life that perhaps you need to embrace? The place of preparation that you might be taken into the arms of Jesus or into new heights of seeing the glory of God. Will you go there? Secondly, we learn not only the place of preparation, but the practice of preparation, namely repentance. What is it that John was primarily inviting people to as he drew them into the wilderness? It was repentance. We see in verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then again in verse 5, all the people were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Preparation to follow Jesus includes learning the art and the grace of repentance. Uh, Finding Jesus, yes, but first realizing our need for Jesus as broken people, as sinful people. Uh, Repentance is the renovation of our hearts and our lives. And John himself invited every person that came to him to recognize that they were desperately in need of a washing. That's what his baptism signified. A person that came to be baptized by him symbolically with water was also a person that was saying, I need a washing. Why? Because I'm filthy. I need a washing from God. Why? Because I can't cleanse myself. Those are words of repentance. And this is something, a practice that we need to deeply learn to make a habit of our hearts. But what does repentance mean? What is this all about? It's a hard word, maybe even a threatening word. Maybe you've never used it except in a negative sort of way. For Christians, repentance is like breathing all over again. It's like you've been suffocating, but you've actually learned to breathe. It's meant to be a normal practice that gives you life. As Thomas Watson, the old Puritan who wrote about this hundreds of years ago, put so helpfully, he said, gospel repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. And he says that it's made up of six different ingredients. Listen to this. Six ingredients of true repentance. Number one, it includes sight of sin. To to be able to see our sin in our lives and the evil in sin and to see ourselves as sinners. Sight of sin. Second ingredient, sorrow for sin. It's not just seeing sin. It's actually being sorrowful for it. To agonize over the ways our sins offend and grieve God. Thirdly, confession of sin. That means agreeing with God that we're a sinner and that we have sinned. 
Fourthly, not only sight of sin, sorrow for sin, confession of sin. Fourthly, Watson talks about shame for sin. He, he, he mentions that we ought to have a holy bashfulness for the ways that we have sinned, for ways that sin has made us naked before God. That's a necessary experience in the grace of repentance. Fifthly, this must lead to a hatred for sin. Watson writes, Christ is never loved till sin be loathed. Listen to that. Christ is never loved till sin be loathed. We need to learn how to hate the sin that we see and have sorrow for and confess and have shame towards. We need to have a hatred for our sin. And lastly, sixthly, the ingredient for sin turning from our sin, that we need to not only hate for it, we need to forsake it, flee from it, cut it off from our lives. Repentance includes a change of our hearts, a change of life, turning away from our sin and turning towards God. See, repentance prepares our hearts, readies our hearts to receive Christ himself as the only balm of comfort, the only healing, the only salvation for sinners. Walton writes, how welcome is a surgeon to a man who is bleeding from his wounds. Of course, Christ is the surgeon and our wounds are our sin. We won't see any need for Jesus. We won't see the beauty of the provision of him as our Savior until we learn to see our sin for all that it is and learn to repent of our sin. Repentance prepares us to follow Jesus with a whole heart. But it's not just preparation, of course. It's a prerequisite. It's required. And, and I need to tell you, even if you identify as a Christian or a Christian-ish religious person, if you've never experienced what the Bible calls repentance, as Watson just described it and unpacked it for us, as we're describing here, if you've never really looked closely at your sin, if you've never felt a horror for the selfishness of your hearts, the ways that you harm other people, the way that you offend God. If you've never experienced repentance, confessing your sins, dear friends, you may not be a genuine follower of Christ. I say this not to condemn you. I say this to wake us up to understanding that repentance is something we must embrace as a grace from God. A step towards the surgeon who can heal our wounds. Even if you're attracted to the love of Jesus or some notion of the love of God, unless you've gone through the humbling of Jesus, you cannot be a true follower of him. But I want to unpack for you one specific doorway, one of those ingredients of repentance that I would love to invite you to put into practice more fully this week, and that's the practice of confession. As part of our preparing of our souls to receive more fully and wholeheartedly the grace of Jesus, a couple things I want to point out to you. Confession, remember, first of all, begins with love. Confession doesn't begin with beating yourself up for the wrong that you did. Confession begins with believing that God loves sinners, that he invites sinners into his, his presence, and that he promises to forgive them and to cleanse them. 
Confession begins with love. That's why even in the order of worship of our worship services, where we confess our sins as we did just a few minutes ago, you'll notice confession is not the first thing we do. We don't show up in God's presence and say, well, let me now talk about all the ways that I've failed. No, we do that out of a response to our experience of God's love, which we hear in our call to worship, a God who graciously invites and welcomes sinners into his midst. The songs that we sing, we hear about the love of God, and we lift up our hearts in praise and adoration to that God. And it's only then that we then come to God and say, in light of your love, which we have violated, now we confess as a response to the one who has loved us so. We confess beginning with the love of God. Secondly, our confession must be specific and deep. I mean, remember, our confession doesn't cleanse us from our sins. We don't rattle off words of confession hoping to bribe God to accept us again or hoping to purge ourselves of our wrongdoings. Our confession is simply coming in agreement with God and therefore we need to invite God to give us grace to recognize specific sins, specific wrongs that we have done. A a wicked man, uh, Watson writes, acknowledges he is a sinner in general. I mean, you know, we're all not, you know, sinners. Uh, And nobody's perfect. Amen. That's not biblical confession. Name specific ways in which you have failed before the law of God. Specific ways in which you have failed to love your neighbor. Uh, specific ways in which you have failed to love your God. Enumerate them before God as a way of acknowledging your sinnerhood. Name specific sins and then go deep. Name also the sins underneath the sins, the things that motivated you to lovelessness, your pride, your selfishness, your self-conceit. Be specific and name the deeper sins underneath the sin. I saw it even in my own heart recently, uh, where things that I I was nursing in my heart really I I noticed to be part of a product of self-pity, sort of licking my wounds and not actually acknowledging the pride that lurks underneath that self-pity. I needed to bring that into confession before God. Uh, Thirdly, confession should be done to others and before others. Of course, you confess your sins to other people, even as we confess our sins to God, but we also confess our sins before other people as well. The book of James tells us to do that. Confess your sins to one another. It's a, it's a training of our souls to be that honest with God and with ourselves and one another about our need for God's grace. And fourthly and lastly, we always must finish by confessing God's grace. Agree with God that he's that loving, that gracious, that merciful as he has promised. That means receive God's pardon and his forgiveness with joy. Every Sunday when we confess our sins, we don't say, God, I sinned, I stink, goodbye. No, no, no. We say, hello, God has forgiven me. We hear God's own words of pardon. 
That is the most important part of that pattern of confession. Don't you know? You need to hear that word of forgiveness. You need to even maybe stand up and receive it as the very word of the king. You need to internalize it and repeat it 10 times more than you repeat the confessions of sin in your heart. Confess his grace to you and believe it with all your heart. Very practically and specifically then, friends, pay special attention over this coming month to the confession of sin each week. Put that into practice. Maybe even cut it out of the bulletin sheet if you've printed it out, or maybe write it down and pray. You can just use the words that we use on Sunday every day of the week to pray over your sins and to give yourself a time of confession. Confess your sins as a way of preparing your heart to rejoice in Jesus, to follow the one who promises to give you everlasting joy. Confess your sins this week to another person. That might feel intimidating, but this is part of us growing in our knowledge of God's grace to say, you know what, can I just tell you something I've been struggling with, dear friend? Uh, Can I just uh, confide in you? I I need your prayers. Help me as I grow in this area of weakness and sin and brokenness. Confess your sins to one another. Parents, uh, walk your kids through confession of their sins. Teach them not only to say sorry to you, but also to say sorry to God and show them the sweetness of God's forgiveness. Don't forget to walk them through the promise of pardon. Kids, don't forget to believe that God forgives you. He doesn't just want you to hear, he doesn't want to just hear you say sorry. He wants you to hear him say, I love you. Kids, parents, wallow in the love, what? (laughs) Marinate in the love of God, bask in the forgiveness of God together. It's the most important, one of the most important things that you parents can do for and with your kids. Help them to hear the pardon of God. Dear friends, this week, will you believe that confession, that this grace of repentance is what prepares our souls to follow this Jesus who promises to be everything for us and to change our lives. Confession of sin prepares our hearts. As Watson again says, confession of sin endears Christ to our souls. If I say I am a sinner, how precious will Christ's blood be to me? Do you want Christ's blood, his cross, his life, his person to be precious to you? Friends, this week, confess your sins joyfully, expectantly, and full of gospel hope. But thirdly, we find here not only the place of preparation and not only the practice of preparation, but lastly, and in closing, the promise of preparation. Friends, you need to know that not all is preparation. We really do find the grace of Christ. We've already talked about this at several different points, but we need to know that we are not wasting our time and energy. We actually do receive the reality of Jesus who calls us to follow me. We find the promise of the hope of cleansing. What was it that John called the people to as they came to the wilderness, stripped bare and naked before God? 
brought to the end of themselves, called into the practice of repentance, baptized in a way where they were confessing, I need a cleansing, I need a God. What did they receive? The assurance that their sins would indeed be forgiven. Not by John, but by Jesus, the one who was to come. Forgiveness, friends, is real. I don't know if your conscience is burdened by something today. The pandemic has placed a lot of pressures and stresses on us. I don't know about you. I have been as selfish as all get out over these past couple of months, thinking of myself maybe more than I ever have in my weariness, in my stress, in these pressures. I have a lot, I have had a lot of sins to confess. Do I know, do you know that you have had, I have a lot of sins that have been forgiven, that are forgiven in Jesus? Hallelujah. Do you believe that? Jesus really does wash us from our sins. John baptized with symbolic water, sacramental water. Jesus was the reality to which that water would point. John called people to recognize their need. Jesus was the one that they need, that we need, because Jesus died, bled, paid the price for our sins, for the forgiveness of our sins. Do you believe that the promise that this preparation points to is the hope of cleansing. It's also the hope of new life. John says, I'm going to give you, Jesus is going to give you the Holy Spirit who actually will dwell within you, change your life. This is an invitation to transformation. Following Jesus is not just tightening a few religious bolts into your soul. Following Jesus is to bring about a whole new you, fully transformed by the grace of God. And then we're brought into not just the hope of cleansing, the hope of new life. We're being brought to the greatness of Christ. Do you see how John points us, points the people around him to this promise that when you begin to prepare to follow Jesus and actually find him, you start to see the greatness of Christ. You start to see the greatness of his beauty. You start to see the power of his might. You start to see him reigning over all things. You start to see how all of life needs to be lived in service to him. You see that he's in control of all things and you discover a new freedom because you see that he's the mighty one who is mighty to say. Jesus becomes bigger and bigger and bigger to you. As John preached in verse 7, after he, me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. John knew that the coming Christ would be, would be one far greater than him. He knew his need and therefore knew how big the Savior who would meet that need truly would be. Don't you know this is the great promise that once we adequately and properly prepare our hearts, we will see Jesus as great and great in increasing measure. Again, in the Chronicles of Narnia, I told you I've been reading these books with my kids. In Prince Caspian, 
There's a time in which little Lucy, who had grown to be older, finally meets Aslan, the great lion, the rescuer, and the king of Narnia. And she looks at him and, and she says, Aslan, uh, it's been a while, Aslan, you're bigger. Aslan replies, that is because you're older, little one. Uh, not because you are, Lucy replied. I'm not, not bigger, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Dear friends, don't you hear this invitation to preparation is in fact an invitation to see and to follow a bigger Jesus, to see him as being bigger in his power and bigger in his love and bigger in his beauty and bigger in his glory. And he promises to be all these things for you. Is that the Jesus you want to know? Is that the Jesus you want to follow and encounter? Maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time, all over again with a new personal revival. Would you dare to pray for that? Yes, even in the midst of a pandemic, because God has put us in a pandemic wilderness, scarcity can breed and blossom intimacy, dear friends. Jesus can meet you in a way that you can hardly imagine. Jesus might be doing a new thing in your life. Jesus might reveal himself in a new way in our study of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is calling you to follow him. Will you receive his grace in preparing yourself to follow him, to enjoy him, and to glorify him? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you and we want to see you and know you for who you are. Prepare our hearts. Bring us to these wilderness places that we might be resisting and strip us bare in a way that we see our needs so that we can fully encounter your love and grace in the measure that you want to pour it out into our lives. Help us to repent Give us grace to confess our sins freely this week that we might know your love and mercy for our sins and for us as sinners. And help us to believe your promise that you cleanse us and that you will become great to us and even greater and greater and greater. Jesus, we want to follow you. Teach us what it means to follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.